Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. Theopolis trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs will learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are taking a short break from our new series on the Gospel of John to have a discussion with Jerry Boyer. Jerry Boyer is the head of Boyer Research, which is a financial research organization. And here he's going to have a discussion with Peter Lighthart and Alistair Roberts on the rich man and Lazarus story in the Gospels. They'll also talk about some of his other projects where he's looking into what are the preconditions of financial collapse at a national level. We want to thank you for listening. We hope that you enjoy tuning in to this conversation. And here are Peter Lighthart, Alistair Roberts, and Jerry Boyer discussing the rich man and Lazarus. Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. This is Peter Lighthart, and I'm here for a special edition of the Theopolis Podcast. Over the last several weeks, we started a series in the Gospel of John, primarily looking at the book of signs in the Gospel of John, the episodes and miracles that are described as signs and the other ones that appear to be signs, even though they're not explicitly described that way. Uh, We'll get back to that series in the next episode. Uh, but we're taking a break from that this week in order to have a conversation with Jerry Boyer. Jerry is the head of Boyer Research, a financial research organization that he and his family run uh, in Pittsburgh. Uh, Jerry has been on the podcast before, and he's talked to us about his research on the Gospels and particularly on the teaching of Jesus and the actions of Jesus with regard to wealth. Uh, it's a topic of interest for Jerry as a as a financial researcher and economist, uh, and also as a Christian who's done a significant amount of research and work in biblical studies. Jerry is going to be talking specifically, he's going to be talking about that larger project about Jesus and economics, but specifically about a, a, an upcoming lectionary reading uh, the, in Luke's gospel, the, the uh, story, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, uh, and uh, that's going to be the focus of attention. Uh, uh, in our discussion today. So, Jerry, uh, welcome. Uh, thanks for coming back to the Theopolis Podcast. Thank you. It's uh, great to be back with you. I'm a Theo married to a Thea, so it's always an honor to be here on the podcast with you gentlemen. We also have Alistair Roberts joining us from the UK, and uh, we're going to be talking, the three of us are going to be talking together over the next uh, next little while. Brian Motes is lurking in the background, making sure that everything uh, keeps on track. And uh, our executive de- director, John Crawford, is uh, as often looking over the shoulder, our shoulders from the shadows, uh, just making sure that we continue to produce things that are, that are uh, advancing the, the, the agenda and the mission of Theopolis. Uh, so welcome to everyone, and welcome to uh, the listening audience. Uh, Jerry, before we get into the specific passage, I wanted to bring up something that you've, we've talked about a little bit privately. Uh, it's a research project that you're involved in that I think is uh, of interest to Americans generally, uh, perhaps people beyond the U.S., but it's not, it's not a, you told me uh, just before the, uh, the podcast, rec- before we started recording, that it's not a book project, it's a research project, it's a model that you're working on having to do with economic crises and trying to um, figure out some of the, the uh, constants of economic crises. Uh, so why don't we start there? What, for uh, those of us who don't speak in numbers, how would you describe the problem you're trying to solve or the questions you're trying to answer in that project? 
the question that I'm trying to answer is what are the preconditions of a financial collapse at a national level? Are there signs of the times, um, you know, a certain look in the sky or the, you know, softening of the buds on a fig tree? Is there something that's prudentially available, um, not blood moons or prophecies or, you know, the sort of thing that um, has a lot of purchase in the evangelical world? But um, statistics, ratios, preconditions for financial collapse that we can see in advance and know that um, the time is nigh uh, and that soon there'll be some kind of um, what I call around here, we call it a cat loss, which is not a lost pet. It's a catastrophic loss um, and a catastrophic loss we're defining as either either the worst 6% or the worst 2% of returns, which would be very large financial losses at a, at the, at to the entire financial market of a country. Um, so this, these things do happen. Um, they, they, um, they happen rarely by nature. Um, I mean, that's the nature of them. We're looking for unusual events. Um, and there's been a lot of analysis about them, but not a lot of it, um, has been willing to look at the data and see what the data tells us about when these things happen. But instead people tend to come to it with a preconceived notion about what it looks like before things break. Um, and then may, they might be going to, you know, going to look for some data that um, proves the point that they've already made. And there's a lot of this. Conservative evangelicals have been really on this a lot. Um, and there's been a lot of false positives for catastrophic uh, collapse, dollar collapse, uh, for, for example, for the United States. And also it's been very U.S. focused. It's like, when I when I tell people that the project I'm working on, they say, "Oh yeah, you know, is the U.S. going to collapse?" And it's like, "Oh, you know, I haven't really looked at the U.S. that much." You know, <laughs> there's, I'm looking at 40 other nations mostly. Um, so it's something that has not generally been done in an international context. It's not generally been done in a way that says that providence speaks to us through data. We've talked about data before, right? Data is a Latin word. Um, it's a cognate from the Greek. It's literally things given or you know, it, you can translate it, I think, a little bit with a, a little bit of leeway. Gifts. Data is a gift. So what we're trying to do, my team and I, is take that gift seriously and say, okay, when we look at actual financial collapses in history and the preconditions, what patterns emerge so that we can be more on guard about this as investors, as citizens, as as entrepreneurs. Yeah. And is this, it's obviously has a motivation. Uh, it fits with your with your day job, but is there a particular a particular set of circumstances that are current that uh, you're that motivated this project, or is is it because I, you see so much, as you said, false positives out there that you wanted to actually get some more, get your hands on something more tangible? I think um, this is something I've been interested in for a long time and have been working on sort of on a low, low key basis. What put this up to the top of the agenda? Which may, you know, I mean, with your day job, you have to do, you know, what the job is, right? So, what made this part of the day job that clients were interested in? Um, and it is the, um, we have a strong dollar right now. We've had a strong dollar. And that tends to be one of the triggers. When the dollar is strong, other nations, for reasons we can get into, tend to have these collapses, um, especially countries that have borrowed in dollars. 
Um, a lot of these other nations, they have high interest rates because they're high risk. And what they'll do is when they go out into the markets and borrow money, they'll think, well, why should I borrow in Turkish lira where the interest rates are so high or in Russian rubles where the interest rates are so high when I can borrow yen or dollars where the interest rates are low? It's, hey, it's a no-brainer, no risk. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm borrowing at a tiny fraction of the interest rate. Well, but there is risk. You've, you've struck your hand to be surety. And the risk is that if the dollar gets too strong, you have to pay back strong dollars. If the dollar gets too strong, you're debased currency. You have to turn your debased currency into dollars to pay it back. So if your currency loses half its value, you've really effectively doubled your debt level because there's now a currency transaction before you have to pay back your debt. And that that ten, that happened with Turkey recently, the nation of Turkey. And Turkey has undergone a catastrophic financial loss. Um, and that kind of put that up at the top of the agenda. It's like, well, okay, how do we spot these things before they happen? What are the preconditions? Um, and uh, Turkey had a number of them. Um, and we've had other of these in the past. You know, what are the preconditions for this? So that's what, what put it up there on, on the top of the agenda. I think what we found that is probably most interesting, at least to, to data type people, is that there tends to be an idea that if you do A, B, C, and D, that makes you risky. Uh, so we want to avoid anyone who does A, B, C, and D. But the fact is that these risk things cluster together. There are multiple paths. Um, and the pattern here is that this analogy is not new with me. You'll recognize that a nation is like a house. And if it's built on a foundation of sand, it's far more likely to get washed away in a flood. Um, and if it's built on a foundation of stone, it's far less likely. Well, there are just different kinds of sandy foundations. There's the high debt sandy foundation, which means you can have a debt crisis like Greece. That's the Greece, Italy, by the way, Catholic countries, Catholic or Eastern Orthodox countries are much more susceptible to this and Islamic countries. Um, and I tell you, a lot of data analysts are not looking at that as a factor, but it's a really important factor. Um, there's another one, too much real estate investment. There's a, one I just talked about where you're borrowing in another currency, which is a kind of way of suppressing the real truth about how much in debt you are. It's a striking hand to be surety um, for currency um, traders. So there's different versions of it. There's different ways in which there's different kinds of sand you can build your house on. And the other thing we're noticing is that um, you can go along like this for a while and it's okay until there's a storm. So it's not like you can just say, well, because you're high in debt, you're going to crash next year. It's more like because you're high in debt, you're vulnerable, but it's not until a flood comes. So we've tried to identify what are the economic and financial storms. Strong dollar is one of them. Um, a global recession is another one. When when the economy of well, the world tends to go down, when commodity prices drop, et cetera, then it's like the, the problem, which has been there all along, expresses itself yeah, because, you know, in the parable of the of the um, in, in the Sermon on the Mount, what I'm talking about, the parable of the houses, the house built on stone and built on sand. It's Jesus doesn't say because you're built on sand, you're going to fall. He says when you're built on sand and then the storm comes and the rains come, then you're washed away. And I think that what that can do is it can confuse people who are looking at the data and they just say, well, if you're doing the bad thing, something bad's going to happen. And it's like, no, there's another dimension here. When you're doing the bad thing and the trial or the test comes, then something bad is much more likely to happen. And just people have not really looked at that combination before. And I, I learned to look at that from, from a rabbi 
from uh, Nazareth um, in his inaugural speech to the world. <laughs> yeah, and you, you pointed to a number of places in, that, in your description of that where you're trying to think through these financial and economic questions within a biblical frame. You're obviously, you have this large image that you're using of the uh, Jesus image of the house on the sand and the house on the rock. But as far as identifying the, the markers, the signs that the storm is coming, how is your work in, in uh, scripture entering into your identification of those, those indicators? It generally, the work in scripture gives me a framework to understand the nature of risk. Um, and in finance, a, a revolution occurred, um, and it tends to come from the sort of the atheist quarters of finance and economics called modern portfolio theory, which basically sees volatility as risk. If the price of something moves around a lot, that means it's risky. I don't think that's right. Um, uh, and by the way, the world said, okay, then that means that real estate and bonds based on real estate, because they're not volatile, must be low risk and then loaded into them, you know, bought, bought tremendous quantities of these low risk. And they could point to the academics, hey, this is this is low risk, according to modern portfolio theory. Right. It was, and how did that it, work out? <laughs> it, right. It was the riskiest thing in the world. Um, uh, so I don't think that's the way to look at risk. I think that Jesus's way of looking at risk is that if you hear his words and believe them and follow them, if um, you follow these principles, if you want to put it that way, um, then you're less risky than if you don't hear them or hear them and don't obey them or, or, or don't understand them or don't follow them. So there's a whole different approach to risk. Now, when I start to get into it, um, there's also ways in which scripture informs that because there are proverbs about you know striking your hand to be surety. And a lot of these things are situations where nations have struck their hand to be surety in ways that they weren't fully aware of the risk. Um, and these, these currency crises are like that. Um, you strike your hand to be surety. There's also, um, there's currency crises like the, like the Asian contagion where nations made a promise to stay pegged to the dollar, but they weren't willing to pay the price to stay pegged to the dollar. They want to de debase their currency to goose their economy, but they're supposed to stay pegged to the, stay pegged to the dollar. And I think about Ecclesiastes, better not to swear than to swear and not to do. Um, these countries would have been fine if they had floating exchange rates. They would have been fine if they made a promise and kept it. What destroyed their economies is they made a promise and didn't keep it. So there's specifics. And there's a lot of biblical material about debt. Um, and I would say that debt is really central to this. Um, but it's a little more subtle picture than, oh, the U.S. debt is $20 trillion, so we're going to collapse next year. There's been a lot of that in Christian radio, a lot of buy gold. It's, it's coming down. Um, and I think that maybe these people also tend to underestimate comp what theologically we might call common grace. I just say a long-suffering God uh, who gives people time to repent. And so we've, been, we've had a lot of false positives for financial collapse um, because I think we think of God mostly as judge as opposed to thinking of God mostly as judge who's putting his judgment off to give us more time, you know, put more, put more fertilizer around the tree. Maybe this one can be saved. I mean, I know God doesn't make mistakes, but the closest thing he makes to mistakes is maybe giving us a whole lot more time than would seem reasonable. Right. Um, and I think that our crowd hasn't seen um, how willing God is to give second chances. Yeah. If we could move into the, uh, the specific um, project on the gospels, uh, in, uh, You've talked about that before on the podcast, but 
Uh, that's been a number of months ago. And maybe you could sketch what you're trying to do in that. That, that is a book project. The book will be out about a year from now uh, through Fidelis Press, September 2020, fall 2020 is what you're looking at. But uh, you're trying to figure out how uh, what Jesus' teaching is on the Gospels and do, putting that in the context of first century Judaism and the economic circumstances that Jesus is operating in. And when we talked before, you pointed out that your assessment of the Galilean economy, for example, is quite different than what you'd find in uh, a lot of New Testament scholarship, Richard Horsley and others who see it as a peasant economy. Uh, you have a very different view of how that works. So if you could just give a general sketch of the of that of that book project. Yeah, I'd be happy to. Um, and it, there's a real parallel between this and what we just talked about, because I think what Richard Horsley is doing, and he's a respected scholar, and I've met him, and I, I think he has a lot of contribution to make. But essentially, Horsley and others like him are doing, mo they're, they're using modeling to say, this is what the Galilean economy must have been like. You know, given the nature of the economics and given the nature of the exploitation and given the nature of the ruling class or what it given, given social science models, this is what the Gal Galilean economy must have been like. There must have been wide scale encroachment on land. Um, uh, there must have been people being put off of their property. Therefore, there must have been a large homeless um, population. And therefore, in that context, a lot of Jesus, you know, what he would have been doing was leading some kind of peasant revolt, a nonviolent peasant revolt, perhaps, but a peasant revolt. Um, the problem is that uh, you, you can have your theories, but you actually have to go to the data. And the archaeological data is does not show that. It shows a relatively prosperous Galilee. I wouldn't necessarily say a boom town. I wouldn't say a, a, a highly affluent area, although certain areas were affluent. Sepphoris was affluent. Tiberius was affluent, it looks like. Um, uh, and uh, uh, Magdala looks like it was an affluent area. Um, but generally, you have a kind of a frontier economy, entrepreneurial, um, a lot of small business owners, um, a lot of freehold farmers. In other words, the farmer owns the land that the farmer works on rather than you just go a little bit south to the Great Plain and you have gigantic agricultural combines with absentee owners. You know, somebody defeated some enemy of Caesar's and Caesar says, here, have 100,000 acres. I don't like to farm Caesar. That's okay. You never have to go there. We got slaves to handle that for you. Mm -hmm. uh, you just you just sit in wherever you want, Judea, and collect the checks, or in Rome and collect the checks if you like. Um, and Galilee doesn't seem to be like that, according to the archaeological records. We, I mean, we've done a lot of digging in Galilee in the past 30 or 40 years. So I can forgive scholars in the 70s and 80s who were depending on social science models to tell us what the Galilean economy must have been like. But now we have a much better idea. Nazareth was a, what seems to have been a reasonably prosperous village um, and near Sepphoris, which was uh, very prosperous. Now, northern Galilee, you know, up in Miron and other places like that, that's a little more hillbilly Appalachian, a little poorer um, because you didn't have as much trade. Um, but Galilee was a decentralized economy, uh, more entrepreneurial, more dynamic. And what I'm saying is maybe we pay attention to that and, and see if Jesus talks about economic matters differently in Galilee and to Galileans than he does, say, in Judea and to Judeans. And the, pro and the pattern is overwhelmingly he does. Right. And that's, that, that brings us into the context of the Luke passage that uh, you, you wanted to talk about. That's uh, Luke 16, the story of the rich man and Lazarus. But that's, that's on Jesus' journey to Jerusalem. Luke has this lengthy journey narrative taking about 10 chapters of his gospel from the transfiguration to the triumphal entry. That's all 
on the way toward Jerusalem. Uh, and so Jesus is nearing uh, Jerusalem. He's in Judea. And w- what's happening to his teaching on wealth as he gets closer to the capital? It's getting more explicit. It's getting more in their face. And basically, it you know ends up with the parable of the um, of the vineyard workers, which the religious leaders, the scripture says, discerned that he was talking about them and then decided to destroy him. So I'm with Tom Wright on the idea that these parables, um, you know, there's this kind of quaint idea that Jesus spoke in parables because the simple people couldn't understand and he wanted to make things understandable. And, you know, we all know that he spoke in parables so that he wouldn't be understood, right? Um, why not? Well, you know, my thesis is because if he was understood with parable number one, that would have been also the last parable. Uh, you know, I mean, th- th- you know, if it, it's not until they really are clear. Oh, I see. He's messing with our livelihoods. Um, he's talking about our greed and our desire, you know, our um, our economic model that that's when they kill him. Right. I mean, he's a nuisance when he's messing with their theology, but he's a target of murder when he's messing with their money. Um, and I would say that you know, there in Luke 16, we're getting there, you know, (laughs) or he's turning up the heat a little bit, but there's maybe still a little bit of deniability. They can still, you know, think that maybe he's talking about their enemies rather than talking about them, meaning the ruling class, the the ruling religious class or, and political class. So obviously we, in America, we have a ruling class that's largely political and corporate. And then there are sort of high points of, of the church, you know, for, you know, first, uh, you know, first, a Presbyterian or let's say first Episcopal or the national cathedral. But of course, anyone who's listening to Theopolis knows that they had a much more unitary society and religious status and political and financial status were much more closely intertwined with one another. So, um, so yes, there's a progression and by the, by the, by the parable, if you will, um, I know there's a debate about whether Lazarus and the rich man is a parable and it's a there's a lot of mimetic rivalry over that because it goes to, you know, teach you know, old fights about what hell is like. I, I'm not, I don't have an opinion on that. Um, I just call it the power, a parable out of habit. I'm not trying to pick a fight in that fight. So, but we get to this parable and I think we're getting pretty explicitly economic just before this, you know, the, the scripture tells us that the religious leaders were philargos. They were lovers of money. Also right after another parable that's pretty clearly financial and economic, the parable of the um, unjust steward, which in my opinion is pretty clearly a takedown of the temple elite, that they are the unjust stewards who are forgiving debts in exchange for financial reward. They're essentially gaming the system. And I think um, so there's clearly a progression here. And, And almost immediately after we're told they're lovers of money, Here's a story about parable, if you will, that I think is really the barbed end of this is not at your standard local business owner um, who maybe has too, you know, too much money, but it's aimed specifically at the operators of the biggest business in Judea, the temple complex, uh, which was indeed exploiting the poor. Yeah, let me uh, clarify a couple of things. Uh, one is the parable of the vineyard, you said, which... which uh comes kind of at the climax after the after Jesus gets into the temple he's in conflict with the Pharisees the Sadducees come the Herodians everybody tries to get a piece of him but he tells this parable about the vineyard owners or the tenants in the vineyard and you you take that as an as you said that he's he's uh, um, he's criticizing their 
their greed. You're taking that as a parable as a, as a parable about their abuse of uh, the temple wealth. Is that what you're yes. saying? That is exactly what I'm saying. Some some of them focus on some of them focus on the effect on the poor, but by that one, it's all it's this is a little bit more focused on their essentially blasphemy because this is God's property. The temple is God's property. They're they're stewards of it. And after that, you don't really get, you never get a full parable again after that. You get like the quick parable of the fig tree, because what's the point of parables after that? You know, I mean, the cat's out of the bag. They know who, what he's about. He knows what they're about. They know that he knows what they're about and they've decided to kill him. No reason to be surreptitious anymore. Yeah. So can you elaborate too on the, uh, the parable you said about the unjust steward? Uh, you said that the, these are, uh, the temple elites are the unjust stewards who are gaming the system by off. Is it a kind of indulgence system? Is that what you're saying? The, they're that offering, is what I'm saying. They're offering and forgiveness I'm, I'm, of, of spiritual debt, as it were. Yes. Um, I'm probably not ready to argue that one in detail today. I'm just telling you what, you know, what my conclusion is. But and, and I think it's not just the temple elite, but they also had enablers in the Pharisaical community and in the law and, and with the lawyers. Um, and, you know, the. The, the, the simple story is you've got Pharisees and Sadducees and there's religious elites. Then the slightly more complicated story is, well, they're actually at odds with one another. Okay. I think the even more complex story is, yeah, they're at odds at one another, but they also have overlapping interests. And you're beginning to get Pharisees on, this, on the Sanhedrin and they're not so much you know, they're not maybe as much as odds with one, with one another as was previously thought. And that the scholar, Pharisee, lawyer, scribal types are helping the temple elite in some ways in creating workarounds, essentially forgivenesses. If you do this, then you're then you don't have to follow the Shemitah law. You don't have to forgive debts. So there's a kind of a release going on or a tying to. So it's I'm going to put a debt on you. I'm going to maybe you didn't know this, but you have to wash your hands after you touch so and so. You got to do that. So I'm putting a debt on you. Oh, but I can also release the debt for a small fee. I can tell you how to do this, um, and so you don't have to. You you can be released of your debt. So there is a kind of non arms length transaction where debts are being released, spiritual debts to God, which are also financial debts. I don't think the scripture makes a hard distinction between financial debts and moral debts. Um, I think that the, th the thinking of first century uh, Israel was very much, you know, financial debt, Shemitah laws, forgiveness, very tied up with forgive with what we would call moral forgiveness. So I think that what you have going on there is ways in which they were gaming the system. Um, so because they're too old to dig ditches and they're too proud to beg and they wanted to make a living. And so they help you game the Torah and the system of, um, of indulgences and, and traditions to, in essence, undermine the true meaning of the Torah. So I think that's what's, I think that's the background of this. You use the language of indulgences there, and it seems to me a lot of what you're describing has resonances with the Reformation critique of the Roman Catholic Church. How do you see any of the reformers making, exploring that sort of reading in the direction that you are? Um, do you think that there is a way in which this way of approaching the text and focusing upon some of its economic aspects would strengthen their particular critique of the Roman Catholic Church of their day. Now, I've learned as a 
devoted Theo that when Alistair asks a question, there's a pretty good chance he knows the answer. <laughs> I don't uh, actually know okay. the answer on this question. <laughs> um, I have not seen a lot of this in the Reformed commentators, but I haven't mainly read the Reformed commentators. Mainly what I've read are archaeological material, um, contemporaries, especially a lot of Josephus, some Philo to some degree, Roman historians, uh, original language material, um, and... Um, and some of the church fathers. Um, on the matter of Lazarus and the rich man, I think I first got this idea from um, from one of the church fathers. I forget which one. Uh, is Gregory the Ephraimite, I think, is the one who suggested this to my mind. And I thought, hmm, he might be onto something. And then I dug into it. I could see the reformers making this point. Um, and I do think there's a parallel. Now, I don't want to do what Tom Wright always warns us about, which is to take you know 16th century debates and read them back into the first century. Um, maybe it's more like this is an inherent human tendency. When, when I've talked to some theologians about this, Reformed theologians, I get kind of a pushback. It's like, no, no, Jesus is fighting against Pelagianism and work salvation and self-righteousness. He's not fighting an economic, you know, e economic exploitation fight. And what I would say is those things, I think, always come together. If I can convince you to, to, to get to God, you have to come through me. It's going to be about 15 minutes before I ask for your credit card number, right? I mean, I'm going to, I'm, I, or if I'm a man of pure heart with a theological mistake, my successors will figure out a way to monetize Pelagianism. Um, so I think this is a natural human tendency. And I don't really think of this as having much to do with Roman Catholics now. I mean, I, you know, I'm a Protestant um, and I see a lot of this stuff in, uh, in prosperity gospel circles. Um, in Christian media, um, uh, and there's even you know more mainstream evangelical versions of it. Indulgences like Tony Campoloism, like the high points of evangelicalism that tell executives that they're really in big trouble. But you know, because Jesus says you can't get to heaven, in it's like a camel going through the eye of the needle. But if you support my ministry, my progressive social justice ministry, hint, hint, you'll be okay. Right, because you're one of the guys who gets it. So I think everybody does. I think every religious tradition does this, um, and uh, Jesus just gives us an archetype that we see occurring again and again and again and again. Yeah. Well, I think I think Alistair's question could be a good uh, master's thesis or PhD thesis for somebody because it. Uh, I think there's a uh, uh, that would be really interesting to know if the reformers noticed the kinds of things you're talking about. Uh, I wanted to make sure we get to the the story itself. And uh, you really haven't zeroed in on the story of Lazarus and the rich man. You've hinted about what you don't think it is. You don't think it's just a story about a wealthy businessman who's abusing Lazarus on his doorstep. So what is it about? I mean, you've you've I kind of said that, but... I think it's about the high priest. Um, and where, where does that come from in the passage? How are you getting that? He's dressed in purple and fine linen. Um... And, you know, that's loaded language. I understand that the high priest might not be the only one dressed in purple and fine linen, but he's dressed in purple and fine linen, um, porphyry, uh, same words the Septuagint uses for the, uh, for the garb of the high priest. He is, and the translators all kind of mush this together, gaily living in splendor every day. Um, well, he's, he's, he was, he's rejoicing lampos by lamp literally. Um, and the, that's the splendor and the gaily or, um, uh, happily or whatever, 
Um, the Greek word there is common in the Septuagint for religious festivals. So um, this has clear overtones of high priest um, by lamp feasting as they do uh, morning and, 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 and evening um, uh, in, a fest in a religious festival kind of way. Lazarus is laid at his gate. Um, the Greek word there can mean gate, but it often means um, the porch of a temple. Um, and it it's used that way in the New Testament. When Peter is at the porch of the temple denying Jesus, it's the same word. He's at the temple porch. Uh, later on in the book of Acts, there is a pagan temple, um, which, is, which has a porch. The same word is used there. Um, so I think that is, that's suggestive, um, more than suggestive. Um, I think uh, maybe a little less powerful, but if you're a Theopolitan, crumbs and table are going to be a little bit evocative for you. Um, uh, and I think to me, you know, you have that and then you have the five brothers and, um, Ananus had five sons and Caiaphas married into the family, um, becoming the high priest. And so had five brothers. That's pretty that's pretty big. I did a search on Josephus. I'm not finding, I'm not finding any reference of five other brothers. Um, so Josephus specifically mentions that. Um, Abraham says they have Moses and the prophets that this, he said, father, I beg you send them to my father's house. And the high priest is working in his father's house. He has five brothers. They do have Moses and the prophets. Um, and also what father Abraham says that even if someone raises from the, uh, you know, goes to them from the dead is raised from the dead, they won't repent actually comes true in the real life parallel to this, um, short story, which is that a real Lazarus does come back from the dead. And instead of persuaded, that is when Caiaphas first says that Jesus needs to die. Um, so that's all. Uh, that's a lot of coincidences. Yeah, I am right. Um, so I, I, I don't think what exegetically I'm, I'm never firm on an exegesis. All I do is say, I'm going to take the explanation, which fits the most explains the most details. Um, because every detail that isn't that fits, that isn't really intended is kind of a coincidence. It's unlikely this something called Bayes theorem. It's a way of reasoning about these things. So, so at, at each point, you're getting more and more likely that this is the intent, and I'm pretty well convinced. And so what is it that Jesus is condemning if the, the rich man is the high priest standing for the priesthood and the temple system? Is it a lack of charity to the poor, or what, what is it that he's attacking? I think it's a lack of charity to the poor. I think it's also an exploitation of the poor. Um, I think that Lazarus was poor. Why do I think Lazarus was poor? Well, he's from Bethany. And the evidence is that Bethany was probably a poor town. Eusebius actually says the name means poorhouse, you know, Beit Ani. Now, Ani isn't poor. Ani is people. But it definitely in the Tanakh and Thor, whatever, the, the, Ani tends to connote specifically poor people, although it's not universally that way. Um, and so it seems to have been a pocket of poverty. Um there's a whole thing we can do about Bethany and Jesus ascending from Bethany and what is he saying, right? But let's just leave it there. You have mentions of of uh, lepers in Beit Ani in Bethany, so it seems to have been a place where lepers collected. So I think there's a dare I say social justice 
um, and run the wrath of John MacArthur and the people who signed his statement. I think there's a social justice vibe. I just don't think it's the social justice vibe <laughs> that people who say social justice give us. I think it's critical of concentration of power. Um, and so I think it's the, and, and you gotta, if you really, if you read, um, Nick Perrin's new book, Jesus, the priest, messianic expectation was very tied up in a Messiah who would be a high priest who would do justice to the poor. That was part of the package. We have a package for the second coming, you know, Jerusalem, you know, there's, there's now, a, you know, Israel, 1948, 666 and computer chips on the forehead. We have expectations about in our popular culture. Well, their expectations were he would be the high priest or he'd be aligned with a high priest who would enforce the Shemitah laws and bring justice to the, to the poor. That's, that's what the coming of Messiah meant. Um, and the, when the Messiah did come, he did say, I'm coming to bring good news to the poor. So I, I, I don't know if we're going so far as to distinguish between a failure to positively help the poor as opposed to restraining from exploiting them. But the high priest was part of the system of exploitation through things like the prosbol, which they were workarounds to the debt release laws. Um, and um, so basically pagans were the ones. I mean, the dogs helped lick the wounds of the poor. Um, you know, in Israel, uh, but the temple elite said a lot about it. They centralized the tithe, the, even the poor tithe, which was supposed to be a local tithe in the Torah. They centralized it in the temple, I guess, because you can more efficiently, you know, uh, administer, um, you know, the help for the poor. But it was really a self-dealing operation. Is the is Jesus warning? Not I don't mean this to be diminishing it, but is it is it that? The temple elites are destined for judgment and the fire of God's wrath because of the way that they are abusing the Lazaruses that are on, at their gates. Or do you see some other some other uh, dimension to the warning that's implied by the story? If I see the story in isolation, I don't get a, a great sense of what the warning is. But we've got other parables, right? Um, and we've got other you know st stories and other comments. Um, so if you fill that in with other things, I think that Jesus is actually, this kind of parallels our talk about, you know, nations being destroyed. I think that Jesus is actually offering, I think that Jesus's warning to the temple elite is not you're bad, so God's going to destroy you. And it's not even you're bad, you've exploited the poor, so God's going to destroy you. I think it's the nature of their evil, the exploitation of the poor led to unsustainable debt levels um, so that, you know, I mean, it didn't happen then because as Jesus said, the wood is wet still, it's green wood. But 40 years later, the wood is dry. This, uh, these abuses had continued. And one of the first acts of rebellion in Jerusalem is the Sicarii burned down the House of Public Records in 66 AD because they wanted to gain favor with the masses of, of poor debtors. Um, so if you burn down the, the house of records, then we don't know who owes anybody anything. So I think there is a warning here that's prudential. I don't think that all of Jesus's prophetic warnings is, you know, I just, I communed with the father and I saw a prophetic vision and I can tell you what's going to happen. I certainly know that he could and did do that, but I think a lot of it is, of course, this is going to happen. You've got violent rhetoric, you're a divided society, you're racking up debt, you're destroying your middle class so there's nobody who will fight to defend the social order, and you're picking a fight with the greatest superpower in the history of the world. You don't have to be a prophet to know that this is going to end badly. Now, he's also a prophet, right? But uh, I think there's a certain amount of sort of wisdom. But nah, 
you know, uh, understanding the times to use, you, you, I'm sure you've written about that because you just wrote a commentary on Chronicles uh, where I think Jesus is talking about, these are almost in some sense natural consequences of their economic exploitation. We see a lot of that within some of Jesus' statements. For instance, we could think maybe of the um, the account of the woman who gives the two coins, the widow who gives the two coins, that people will tend to read that as a story of sacrificial giving. But within the context, it's very clearly a criticism of this exploitative system that's about building up this great house, these great buildings that are ultimately going to be torn down. But they destroy wid widows' houses, their house will ultimately be destroyed too. Amen. And, and and the statement that they are devourer of widows' houses appears shortly before that sentimental yep. little fundraising story. And I think the fact <laughs> that that story has become a, story, a fundraising story shows how far we ourselves have gone in this direction. Let me uh, pose a kind of devil's advocate question. So in first century Judea, concentration of power and wealth is in the temple elites. Uh, that's the biggest business, as you said, in Judea. And so when Jesus is attacking wealth, he's attacking a concentration of power and wealth that's being abused and uh, abusing the poor. I mean, you can make the case that that's not where power and wealth are currently concentrated. And so in our current, in our current system, it might be that Tony Campolo is on the right track to use this kind of parable to attack the concentrations of wealth and power in the uh, group of CEOs that he has in front of him. The, the, the less uh, kind of the more simplistic way to ask the question is, uh, even if you're right, doesn't this doesn't this story also have some kind of more general application to and it's a warning against uh, uh, not just uh, trusting in wealth, but an abuse of wealth and uh, an unconcern with the poor. So it would have a general application regardless of whether you're right about its original intent. Well, this is Theopolis. I was told we don't do applications. <laughs> That's all you've been so, doing. That's all you've been doing, Jerry. An unfair question. The application is to think differently. I'm sorry. Go ahead. You already <laughs> broken that rule. Yeah. <laughs> uh, um, well, yeah, maybe uh, it could be. I don't think it is. I think that the human nature continuity here is concentrations of power, um, and I don't disagree that CEOs can have concentrations of power, but I can't stop being an economist who knows that concentrations of power in large corporations are strongly associated with political favoritism. Um, and that um, it's kind of tough to get that sort of thing without a thumb on the scale or an unjust epoch or something like that going on. Um, and so, I mean, I, 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 I think we can be angry at these concentrations of wealth and power. I just think that decentralized orders are a better way to avoid it than centralized orders. Because let's say that Tony Campolo is right and his heart is pure. He's a fellow Christian. Why not? I can, I can start with that assumption. The next one won't be. Right. Um, the next one will just be a sycophant to politicians. Right? I mean, they'll, they'll just be a pet evangelical who you can trot out and say Christians should support doubling the capital gains tax, or Christians should, 
you know, what, whatever the deal is that we're supposed to support, you know, justice for the poor. Um, and I just think that, you know, part of what's going on is Jesus the Galilean is looking at the Judean economy and, and you know, um, there, were, there were rich people in Galilee. Um, there were rich people in Galilee not far from Jesus. Sepphoris had rich people. We've, we've seen the mansions and we've seen the, you know, the ivory, you know, uh, brush handles. I mean, we know now. Um, but where are those denunciations? I mean, are they just coincidentally left out? Where's Jesus's denunciation of Joseph of Arimathea, a pretty poor economic nationalist? I'm going to take a little poke here at the right, who, you know, probably a tin import export guy, right? Where, where, why are all the denunciations of wealth aimed at people who are in Judea or Tyre and Sidon, which were essentially the bankers for Judea? You know, why does the parable of the plane takes a, take a shot? at the wealthy, but the parable um, of the Mount doesn't, the parable of the Mount doesn't, um, you know, why does Zacchaeus get it, right? Um, but the rich neighbors of Jesus up in Sepphoris don't get it. Um, and the and the, uh, the money changers certainly get it between the eyes, specifically the, who? The dove vendors. Why the dove vendors? Why are they, why are they singled out? Because doves are the sacrifice for the poor. So they're the worst exploiters the dove vendors. I mean, the gospel accounts, you, Jesus singles out the dove vendors. Um, so I think that, I, I, I mean, maybe someday if someone can come to me with an economic system and tell me that human nature has changed, or here's an economic system that centralizes power that doesn't end up exploiting everybody, then maybe that Jesus's lesson would apply differently. But so far, what I see is in history, every time p- power is concentrated, people act the way Jesus is denouncing these people for acting. Yeah. So the the difference you're you're saying the difference between what's happening in Galilee and what's happening in Judea is not the level of wealth as such, but it's the combination of wealth and the power to protect that wealth and to exploit people who don't have power or wealth. Yes, that's exactly what I'm saying. That that he is he has a confrontation with a rich young archon, a member of the Sanhedrin, has a conversation has a confrontation with Zacchaeus, who's sort of the anti um, rich young ruler, because this is a rich ruler who might be young, by the way, there's a translational question, whether he's short or young, who actually does repent. Um, and he has a confrontation with the money changers who have a government guaranteed monopoly with the temple authority, right? Uh, because we, the temple is not a religious institution only. Herod controlled the temple. Um, you know, like, like your county executive controls who's on the board of the, of the airport. You know, the airport's independent, but not really, right? The temple was not really independent of Herod. There were, it was run by appointees of Herod. It was an extension of the state. You had fixed prices. Um, you had an unjust weight and measure in that the temple shekel. This is something Jim Jordan has talked about. The temple shekel is heavier than the regular secular she- shekel. Um, and it's like, yeah, I get that. But as an economist, I know that that's not actually a good thing because really, what it really means is it's an unjust... There's a there's a ripoff going on. When you take your currency to the temple shekel, you get half as much temple shekel as you would have otherwise. So it's like it's like a church that says, "Here's an ATM in the lobby, and you have to use our ATM, but it takes fifty percent off the top." Um, and um, you know, if Jesus came back now, I think he would smash that ATM. But I don't think he would go around smashing every other ATM in town. I don't think that Jesus was against making change. I, I think he was against making change unjustly and using the authority of the state and religious elite to do it. When we think about the practice of the early church in Jerusalem, um, how can this help us to get a 
a firmer grasp upon the reasons, for instance, of um, laying their wealth at the apostles' feet. I mean, Jerusalem is a doomed city, so it would make sense to get out of real estate within that particular location. But um, how can we understand maybe the differences between economic practice of the early Christian community within Jerusalem from that we might find in somewhere like Antioch or um, Corinth. Yeah, I think you've you've half am- answered it at least, right? Um, that real estate was not a great thing to hold. And by the way, the rich young ruler had much real estate, Timnay, pro- strong overtones of real property. And real estate is associated with sort of the ruling elite um, the up uh, there was new new wealth. There were nouveau riche, but they were in finance and investing and that sort of thing. The old money, the Church of England, Downton Abbey, you know, kind of old money corrupt system was tied up with land. Um, no disrespect to our British friend here, um, intended. I'm a big fan of Downton Abbey. Uh, so I mean, the sort of the established church was tied up with land ownership, and just like evangelicalism tended to be tied up with entrepreneurship. Um, so um, I think that laying it at their feet, I mean, it's a it's a good investment. Uh, Tom Wright has suggested that actually, and that's you know, by by building a Christian community around the Mediterranean, it actually becomes a fraternal association. That they actually had more permanent residences to go to when the persecution starts in Jerusalem, because the, because they funded to some degree missionary activities around the Mediterranean region. Tom's better qualified to speak of the subtleties of the Greek on that than I am. Um, I think also this is an alternate temple. Um, in that I think we're in parallel with, I think it's Exodus 35 of the votive offerings. These are votive, these are voluntary offerings. So I think by caring for the poor, a new temple is being built um, with votive offerings. Um, And also just to make one other point here, I think this contrasts with the other anti-temple movements. The Essenes, Josephus said, required communal property. To join the Essenes, you had to you know, sell it and put it into the community pot. I think Peter is contrasting with the temple here in that this this gives to the poor rather than takes from the poor, but I think also contrasting with some of the other revolutionary movements, which didn't have a votive offering system, but had already themselves become concentrated power, um, common pursers. And by the way, I think it's not irrelevant that Judas was the keeper of the common purse. I think there's a microcosm in Judas Iscariot, Ishcariot, a man of Cariot, a Judean. I think there's a microcosm of him as a common purse carrier for the poor, allegedly for the poor. And the common poor tithe centralized in the temple, allegedly for the benefit of the poor, but really so they could steal from it. Well, Jerry, it's uh, it's always great to uh, have a conversation with you. Thanks again for joining us this time. We could go on and on. Lots to talk about and uh, look forward to having you back in the future. Thanks again. My pleasure. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.